Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this uh, evening, let's have a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as the psalmist said, it's in thy light that we see light, meaning that it is only when we come to the world around us from the framework of your revelation that we can truly understand and interpret the things around us and that we can have a true perspective on the issues of life, the circumstances of life, the ups and downs, the, the adversities and the uh, prosperity, the good times, that we can truly understand and appreciate these from an eternal vantage point. Now, Father, as we continue our study, as we go through our study of kings, we pray that you challenge us with what we study, that, that our minds would uh, be open to understanding the truths that are there, and that as we study these things, we might recognize it's not just a, an academic study, it's not just a matter of some history, it's a matter of Understanding these these events, these people, these circumstances, because they they give us insight into you, your faithfulness, your work in history, and even though we are living uh, in a different dispensation and some uh, three thousand years later, nevertheless, uh, these princi- same principles apply. We pray these things now in Christ's name, Amen. Tonight we're going to start 1 Kings 12, and before we get into the details of 1 Kings 12, I want to have a little introduction, sort of a framework orientation to the things that we're going through in Kings. And I forgot to get my Bible out of my briefcase. That's just a real oversight, isn't it? That's a good thing and the bad thing about computers. Ever since we started using computers, I just put all the Scripture in my notes. I hardly ever even look at my Bible, and half the time I forget to even get it out. But every now and then, you need to make sure you you have it. Okay, so we get into the study of Kings. One of the things that I've drawn your attention to before, and I'll draw your attention to again and again as we go through, is that at the beginning and 
more often at the or more often at the end of each of these sections where we deal with a king, there is this divine editorial, this this divine comment evaluating the ruler. And that gives us insight into how God looks at the leadership, the politics of that particular ruler, what goes on, what went on during his reign. And this is going to be true with uh, each one of these kings now as we get into the second part of uh, 1 Kings, get past Solomon, that's the first 11 chapters. Now we're going to go through these kings in a little more rapid succession, especially since we're dealing with kings in the north, in Israel, as we approach this split that occurs in this chapter, and the kings in the south in Judah. And it's it's interesting. We'll be going back and forth some between 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles because 1 Kings focuses on both the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. And if you'll notice, as we start chapter 12, we're going to be talking about Rehoboam, who is the son of, of Solomon. But we only have 24 verses that deal with Rehoboam, and that's just the initial part of his reign with the breakup of the kingdom between the northern and southern kingdoms. And then starting in uh, verse 25 of chapter 12, uh, chapter 13, uh, chapter 14 down through verse 20, we're focusing on Jeroboam, who's the king in the north. And then when we get to uh, 1 Kings 14.21, we're going to shift back to Rehoboam, and that will ex- go from uh, 20, was that 21 down to 31. And in those 11 uh, verses, we're going to just get a summation of the rest of his reign. There's more detail given in, in uh, Second Chronicles, so we will look over there as well. And at the end of the, each of these men, there's, there's going to be uh, a, a divine evaluation. I'll give you a little clue. No one in the northern kingdom gets anything higher than an F, and about half of the ones or more in the south uh, get an F. So there's a lot of failure here. And so it gives us an idea of, see, how God evaluates leadership and how God evaluates politics. And it just so happens that we're in a political year, if you didn't notice. And uh, especially since the Republican convention's going on this, this week, sort of, I guess, they rescheduled. I don't know. I was out all day today, and I didn't get a chance to look at anything. So I thought that tonight... We would look at a little framework as I'm thinking through more and more things related to this on divine viewpoint, politics, and leadership as a framework for understanding God's evaluation of leaders. And we have to be careful with this because God's expectations of a leader in Israel are not going to be quite the same as his expectations of a leader in a Gentile nation or a nation in the church age. There will be some things that are true, but there will be other things that are not because the king in Israel it has a special role and a special relationship to God in, in this form of what we would call, what theologians have called the theocratic kingdom. And the term theocratic is just a form of theocracy, and it relates to God's rule. And Israel was initially set up as a theocracy where God was the king and he is the sovereign ruler over Israel. 
but they rejected his kingship during the period of the judges. And there's the well-known verse that's repeated twice in Judges, just so the Holy Spirit wants to make sure we don't miss it. And that is that there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And often you'll find people interpreting that to mean that they didn't have a human king because it's just after that that God uh, will, uh, they, they ask for a human king and they get Saul. But the real issue is during that period, the king is true, is God, and they have rejected God as the authority, and once God is taken out as your authority, then you're always left in some form of moral relativism, which is indicated by the phrase, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so during the period of the judges, there are these various cycles of, of disobedience and discipline, and then they return back to God and he delivers them, and then they go through the cycle again and again and again, and then that ends in the early part of uh, the book of Samuel. And God raises up a special leader who is a prophet, and a priest, and that is Samuel. And uh, Samuel's leadership, though, is going to be rejected uh, eventually by the people, and they're going to demand to have a king like everybody else, a king like all the other nations. And that's a very important passage for understanding what God has to say about leadership and politics, and, and this is one of those key chapters in Scripture that we have to understand. And then uh, God raises up Saul sort of to show them what the bad uh, kind of king is first as a point of comparison, and then uh, he will replace Saul, reject Saul, and replace him with David and the Davidic monarchy, the Davidic covenant, and then David is succeeded by his son Solomon, and that brings us up to where we are in verse 13, uh, chapter 12, rather, where uh, Solomon has died and there is a leadership transition and there's always a challenge to any group, to any church, to any uh, organization, no matter what it might be, when there is a leadership transition. Of course, in this country, we have a an executive branch transition that occurs every four years or eight years, depending on how the voting patterns go. And there is always going to be change uh, at any time, there is a shift in who is in office, even if they're in the same political party, just because it's a different person, different events, uh, different things are going on. Now, one of the things that we hear a lot of in uh, American politics has to do with the role of religion. And you get all kinds of different opinions, and I've heard different opinions uh, expressed by by people who are uh, liberal, by those who are conservative, by those who are Christians, by those who are non-Christians. And, and I've heard a n- number of people who seem to think that religion should be kept out of politics. And it's amazing how many people seem to accept that as a valid premise, that religion should be kept out of politics. And so I thought it would be, it's important to evaluate that little phrase to see if that, that is even a realistic goal or is it in itself a religious statement. Hmm. That'll give us something to think about. So, I've already given it away, of course. I don't, I don't think that it's true at all. I think that it, it, it's a religious statement and it is specifically designed to keep God out of politics. But 
we have to think our way through this because it involves a number of different issues that are, are very important. And if you go too far one way or the other, you're going to get involved in something that's, uh, that's inappropriate. So first of all, let me go through this, break it down in terms of some basic points. I've got about seven basic introductory points. And the first is that any religious system, if it has any depth or complexity to it, and by religious system I mean anything, whether we're talking about uh, Hinduism or talking about the ancient uh, polyg- uh, polytheistic religions of Egypt or Mesopotamia, whether we're talking about Zoroastrianism or, or Islam or Judaism or Eastern Greek, Eastern Greek, Christian Orthodoxy, whatever it might be, any religious system, if it has any depth or complexity to it at all, is going to address the basic issues of life. And trust me, politics, when you understand it in a basic sense, is a key issue in life because politics had to, has to do with the how people as a social group are going to organize and govern themselves. That's very, very root meaning. So any religious system, if it's worth uh, worth anything at all, is going to address uh, all of the basic issues of life. Now, second point. From that, we see that there will always flow, from that uh, address of these basic issues of life, there will always flow some explanation of origins. Why do you think creationism is such a battlefield and has become such a battlefield in education? It's because if you reject God, you have to come up with some alternate explanation, and in my terminology, a myth, in order to explain how people got here and how the earth got here and how things got here, and that there actually is something that exists. You have to explain how it came into existence, and if you reject God, which is the uh, modus operandi of the pagan mindset, according to Romans chapter 1, and in When I use the term pagan, I'm not using it in some sort of nasty or pejorative manner. It's just a technical term for any form of non-biblical thinking. Judaism is not uh, is not pagan. Christianity is not pagan. Uh, I would probably disagree with a number of scholars. I think Islam is pagan. Islam doesn't come out of the Old Testament at all. It has other origins and. If you're interested in that, I think I did a series on it back in Daniel, around Daniel chapter 11 or 12. But I think that it came out of a pure pagan environment where Muhammad just took one of the 360 gods in the Arabian pantheon, flushed the other 359, and kept one. So uh, Allah does not come out of uh, the Old Testament at all, and that's just a, one of those myths that they try to promote. Incidentally, I had an email today from, and I forget what what, what publication or thing it was contained in, um, but it pointed out the fact that the that we, we've got the uh, Arabs over a barrel. Because in 1999, the Palestinians kept saying that uh, came out and, and uh, 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 Islamic leaders with the Waqf, which is the Muslim authority over the Temple Mount, came out saying that there never was a Solomonic Temple, that the Temple Mount belongs to Islam, and that, um, that the Jews have no historical right or there's no evidence of the Jews having any historical claim to the Temple Mount. 
and it has been recently been discovered and published by the Temple, uh, the, Institute, uh, or the Temple Mount Institute in Jerusalem. They came across a document from 1925 where the, the Muslim authority in Jerusalem in a published pamphlet stated that uh, the Temple Mount belongs to the Jews and this was the site of the Solomonic Temple. I just love it when things like that come out. Okay. Anyway, my second point is that from any religious, integrated religious system where they've really thought through things, there will develop an explanation of origins. Where did everything come from? How did the earth, the universe, come into existence? How did man come into existence? And what um, what is his significance? And this may involve either an explanation based on pure random chance, which is the view of Darwinism, but it's also, if you take it back to ancient Greek uh, philosophy, that was the basic mechanism that you had in Greek philosophy, Aristotle. You also have it in ancient uh, mythologies. They just called it a little different term. They just called it chaos rather than chance, but it's the same methodology. And that stands at one extreme end, and then at the other end you have the Christian, the Judeo-Christian position that there is an intelligent, personal a creator who had a specific plan and purpose in mind in the creation of the universe and in the creation of mankind. So there's going to be a view of origins in any religious system. Okay, so first of all, we have any significant religious system. Second point, any significant religious system is going to address origins. And then third point is that how we think about origins will then impact how we think about human society and its institutions. Because if if we are all just the product of pure random chance, and we're we're just an accident of a, pro, a protoplasmic accident, and then none of us is any more important or significant than anyone else. Everything is purely random. Whatever we do has no real meaning or value or purpose. We're just here today and gone tomorrow. We're nothing. Uh, there's nothing significant about us. So how we think about origins affects how we think about about the, uh, society and our relations to one another. So we look at these social institutions that we have, and if you're coming from a random chance orientation, then you're going to look at, at in any, and this is what you'll get in any college sociology classroom, is that, well, some cultures developed uh, a, a matriarchal society and other cultures developed a patriarchal society. Some cultures were polygamous, some uh, became monogamous, but all of these are just different conventions that were chosen to, in order to make life work and make those societies uh, function in, in their particular world, and so they tend to treat them as all having, having equal value. So they look at all at what we call institutions as merely conventions, things that were generated, created by man and in a very pragmatic way in order to make society uh, function and in order to make society work. So that government itself as an outgrowth of these social conventions 
uh, has its ultimate authority located within the, the people themselves. This is just something that was developed by man in order to give some kind of order, or in some cases it was developed in order to uh, exercise power and control uh, to dominate other people. So that's one way of looking at things. Another way is to see that from a Christian viewpoint is that these institutions are part of God's original creation. He has established man, created him as a social creature, and so he has embedded uh, within man's being certain ways of doing things so that these become virtually social laws that cannot be manipulated and cannot be changed without doing harm to society. So if you are a Hindu or a Muslim, if you're a Jew or a Christian, a Druid or a Zoroastrian, uh, and you're attempting to follow the precepts of your religious system, whichever one it may be, they're all going to have different ideas about marriage and family and and government. And government is as integral to Islamic theology as as praying five times a day. And that is why it's not simply from our vantage point, Western vantage point, it's not simply a religion. It is a total way of life that includes a Sharia law and it includes uh, the, uh, the type of government that they have. It's all one package. You can't just, just take, take part of it. So my basic point here is that how you think about origins impacts how you think about society and its institutions. And whatever your religious framework is going to be, it is going to influence how you think about society and those social institutions. Fourth point, the Judeo-Christian scriptures, the Old Testament and the New Testament, provide a specific view of human society as part of God's creation. So that within these scriptures, primarily the Old Testament, We're told that God established and embedded certain institutions within human society. They're not conventions. They didn't originate from the bottom up, but they were established by a creator God from the top down in order to give order and stability to man's uh, social relationships. And when these are honored, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, when these realities, these these social laws or establishment truths are honored, then that society will have a measure of stability and preservation and prosperity. But when these are violated and to to the degree that they're violated, then the society will have instability and will self-destruct. And I always wanted to ask, I had too much authority orientation, though, to ever do this, in my sociology class when I was an undergraduate, uh, can you give me any example of a matriarchal society that, that ever developed anything prosperous, that ever created anything of value, that ever replicated itself over a, a period of time, or whether it just continued to live at a very primitive level? Because there are no examples of matriarchal societies that ever uh, functioned above an extremely primitive level. There's no example of a polygamous society that ever 
functioned above a basically a more primitive level. Once you start violating these foundational uh, establishment principles, then you just can't get very far as a culture or a civilization. Now, of these establishment principles or institutions, I've identified basically five as we have gone through our studies, and this is part and parcel of solid Christian thinking as far back as you have Christianity. You have it's, it wasn't systematized or organized until you got really got into the post-Reformation period. Puritans, the Puritans did both the English Puritans and American Puritans did a lot of thinking about each of these, and that was important, especially among well, in both English law and American law, in developing uh, a lot of the concepts that have been uh, part of what made both British the British Empire. Uh, what it was and what has made America what it is is an understanding of these basic principles. The first three are individual responsibility. Each individual is responsible for his own success or failure, his own. He is responsible before God for the decisions that he makes in life. And then built upon that is marriage, so that a successful marriage is going to be a marriage that is built on two individuals who take full responsibility for their actions within that corporate unity of the marriage, so that if you have one irresponsible person, then it's very likely you're going to have a very difficult marriage. It only takes one to really mess up a marriage. It doesn't take two. It only takes one, and you have to have two responsible individuals, and that's why I often emphasize that uh, that you have to, as a general rule in our culture today, uh, young people need to wait until they're in their 20s before they get married because it's a tremendous decision. There's a lot of pressures that come in, response, uh, financial responsibilities, things like that, and they have to have time to develop those things. Now, that doesn't mean that a 17-year-old that can't get married and have a successful marriage or, or a 19-year-old, but those are... Uh, those tend to be exceptions, and it also tends to make things a lot more difficult for them as they go through uh, those stages of life because many times the ideas that a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old has about what they're going to do in life uh, change dramatically between the time that they're uh, 18 and 19. They change dramatically again between 19 and 20. I mean, just think, most of us probably went to, if you went to the university, went to college, I don't know, I, I never shifted majors. I never, I knew what I wanted to do at the beginning and never changed, but most people change majors every semester. And I don't think that's, that's unusual. When I got to seminary, I, I knew I wanted to pastor, but you can pastor within a number of environments. You can pastor on the mission field, you can pastor here, you can pastor, uh, in a sense, in an academic environment, in a seminary classroom, a college, Bible college classroom, and about every other month I was thinking about doing some other kind of ministry that might come along. I think I just desperately wanted to get out and teach. Um, has something to do with the spiritual gift, I think. So we have individual responsibility. On that you have marriage, and family is built on that. And within each of these, you have an authority structure. The, uh, the authority for the individual is God. And this plays itself out in marriage, because in marriage, you have an authority structure 
doesn't mean that the man is better than the woman or the woman is better than the man, but there's an authority structure for organizational purposes, and the husband is the head of the household. He's the head of the wife. The term there in the Greek, kephale, indicates the person who is in authority. That's how the word is used in, 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 uh, uh, throughout the Greek language. It so ne- never indicates anything else. So you have headship there, uh, one, one who is in authority, the designated leader and responsible one. Then within the family, the responsibility falls upon the parents. And you have to have responsibility among the parents because when they start having children, they need to take responsibility for the, uh, the training, the maturation, the growth of that child, teaching them right and wrong, teaching them responsibility, uh, punishing them when they are disobedient so that they learn these lessons and teaching them the virtues of life, uh, working hard, taking responsibility for your actions, uh, being honest, being truthful, being kind, generous, all these various things, being polite, being respectful of authority. These things need to be taught from the time that they are in diapers because there's a there's a massive arrogance in nature inside each one of those cute little bundles of joy that just wants to establish its own agenda. And what we have to do through self-discipline and through parental training is to teach a child, whether they're a believer or not is not the issue at this point, to teach the child self-discipline and self-control over that arrogant, self-absorbed sin nature. And if they don't learn that, if that is not taught them, and we'll see in the uh, book of Proverbs that Solomon writes that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and we'll see what foolishness is as we go through our study. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, and the rod of correction drives it far away. Now, you'll always find a lot of empirical studies today talking about how corporal punishment from parents, i.e. spanking, really doesn't do any good. But, you know, God says it does, so I don't care what those studies say. Individual responsibility, marriage and family. Notice all those were established prior to sin. When, when people are in a state of perfection, they have these authority structures. They're all, all established. Then, after the fall, after the flood, as man has made a wreck of things because of his sin nature, God establishes two other uh, divine institutions. One is government, and the second is national identity or national distinctions. He sets up nations. And these are developed as additional controls on, the, on sin, on sinful man. A government is designed to punish man when he gets involved, when, when he lets his sin nature uh, run rampant and he goes beyond uh, certain standards of behavior and gets involved in criminality. And national identity is designed in order to keep the human race from uniting against God as it did at the Tower of Babel. And one of the best passages that supports this is the passage related to uh, in Acts 17.26. And he made from one man 
every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Notice that, that God made from every, from one man, every nation of mankind. So nations have their origin in, in God, not in human conventions. Nations are established by God. This comes out of uh, Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel when God scatters man based on scattering the languages. So God establishes every nation. He determines their times and the boundaries of their habitation. So internationalism uh, flies completely in the face of what the Bible teaches. And we have to maintain national sovereignty, national identity. And there's tremendous pressure today from many elites in the world, in government, to try to give up our national sovereignty to world courts, to UN courts, to all of these kinds of things, which runs completely counter to what the Bible teaches. And man has always tried to find some sort of international body to uh, do, do this. And it always has a religious background. I pointed this out before, and I, I <clears throat> made a comment on this several weeks ago, and several people sent me some good pictures and slides of these um, signs at the U.N. This is at the United Nations building in New York where they quote from Isaiah chapter 2 that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And the use of that at the UN indicates that this is not a purely secular organization. It has a religious orientation. They're claiming to do what the Bible says only the Messiah can do. So there is a messianic uh, pretext to the function of the United Nations, as did its predecessor, uh, the League of Nations. So just a couple of uh, pictures, another slide of that. But what I thought was interesting was I got this other slide, and there is another statue at the UN out in the uh, garden that was, uh, 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 it's ironic because it's a, it was a donation from the, uh, from the Soviet Union back in the Cold War days. And this is the statue. And you can't read it, but it has the Isaiah 2 uh, passage uh, carved on the base that they shall beat their uh, swords into plowshares. And so that's what we see there. So the Russians were trying to uh, convince us we needed to be peaceful. No one can trust them. So in all this goes back to the UN. This is Bruegel's famous painting of the Tower of Babel. Goes back to the Tower of Babel when, rather than, when mankind, rather than scattering and filling the earth as God had commanded after after the flood, man decided to unite against God to build this tower to heaven. We have a modern version of that in the uh, at, in Strasbourg at the EU headquarters, their translation headquarters, and it's specifically designed to uh, imitate the Tower of Babel. And so we have a transition that is taking place. Nothing has really changed as we have gone from the ancient Tower of Babel to the modern 
Tower of Babel, which is internationalism. Of course, what we, the question we need to ask of our uh, presidential candidates and political candidates is where do they stand and what's their history on uh, these kinds of international agreements and international courts and their stand on maintaining uh, these sorts of uh, uh, distinctions that uh, national distinctions and national national identity. Now, in light of these things that God has set forth, we can begin to develop something of a political theory that is based upon the Bible. Now, its foundation is noted in Acts chapter 17. I just focused on Acts 17.26, where we learn that God, had, Paul says, this is in his um, uh, Mars Hill address in Athens, where he points out that, that God established all the nations and set their boundaries. But there's a context to that passage and in, in that verse in Acts 17. And he grounds his argument not in culture, not in convention, but the foundation of his argument is God as the creator of all things. And this is seen in the previous two verses, Acts 17.24, and Acts 17.25. And Acts 17.24, Paul says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The point that he is making is God is the sovereign over history, and he is the one who has the right to determine reality. And he has determined reality, and he is the one who has embedded these institutions into man's social makeup because we are created in his image. So we can derive two conclusions from this as we begin to focus on what the Old Testament says about uh, politics and religion. The first is, here's a conclusion, point, our eighth point. Therefore, it's only reasonable for, for us to believe that the God who created all things created mankind to be male and female. This isn't accidental. He designed that a specific way. We can't just come along and say, okay, well, now we're going to make, you know, we're going to go from Adam and Eve, and we're going to say, okay, we're going to get rid of Eve and put in Steve. We can't do that. You can't manipulate this. This is like, like trying to ma manipulate the basic foundations of, of uh, the physical world. So it's only reasonable for us to believe that God who created all things, created mankind to be male and female, designed the entire social concept because he made us to be relational creatures after his image, and that would include marriage, family, and government. Those three things are all part of man's being a social creature. And so we can infer that he would also address in scriptural principles related to each of these. Since he is the one who designed and created marriage, he's going to teach us about marriage in his word. And since he designed and created family, he's going to teach us about family in his word. 
And because he designed and created government, he is going to give us principles related to government in his word. And I'm astounded sometimes. I've heard Christians say that government is evil. Government is not evil. God governs. If government in principle is evil, then God can't, God would be doing something evil by governing. But God governs the universe. Government in and of itself is not evil. Government has, because it involves people, is going to be distorted. It's going to be uh, misused and abused by evil, sinful people. But that doesn't mean we throw out the principle of government or say that government in and of itself is evil any more than we say that, well, because there's a lot of people who screw up marriage and get divorces that, you know, marriage really doesn't seem to work. Let's throw out marriage. Well, there's a lot of people who screw up their families and they don't do a good job raising their kids. So let's get rid of the whole, get rid of the whole concept of family too. See, that's just, that's just idiocy. It's illogical and it's irrational. God established government and therefore government in and of itself is inherently good but it is too often populated by people who are totally depraved and evil and operating on their sin nature and distort and pervert government for their own ends. This is why we have to have governments that are uh, placed under the authority of law so that there is a control. And this is why it's so important to understand that in the British system, uh, history of politics and political theory, you have this recognition that law is king and the king is not law. And the king is under the law. This was comes out of an Old Testament background. When Saul becomes king, Saul becomes king under the authority of God and it is the prophet Samuel who anoints Saul and it is the prophet Samuel who will rebuke Saul and it is the prophet Samuel who will tell Saul that the kingdom is being torn from him. We saw the same thing with uh, Solomon. It is God who tells him that the kingdom is being taken from him because the king only functions as a as a servant over the people. He is not the source of law and he is not the absolute authority, but God is. So the first conclusion I'm making here is that if if God has created everything, then God certainly will address and in, uh, these institutions for us and instruct us as to how we should think about these institutions. And... The last point is that as part of this, it's also reasonable that if we believe that God is a creator and that God created all things and that God addresses principles of marriage for both believer and unbeliever and family for believer and believer, that we should also have him addressing principles of government as well. Isn't that reasonable that he should also be addressing principles of government as well? So if he's going to address principles of government, then that goes right back to our basic question is, can we truly divorce politics from religion? Well, if you're a Christian and you believe in the infallibility of God's word and God's word tells you what government is and what the role of government should play and what the limitations and dangers of government are, then as a Christian, you can't possibly separate your religious views from your views of politics and government and leadership. Not if Christianity is going to be real to you in any meaningful sense of the term. 
And that's a problem is you have some people who want to reduce Christianity to just be a, something that teaches me about how to relate to God and how to have a spiritual life. And Christianity teaches the whole realm of Bible doctrine, which addresses the whole realm of life in God's creation. And so we have to learn how to think properly about the roles of, of government and leadership. And we can't do what Teddy Kennedy recommended, and that is come to the halls of government and leave our religious views at home because what he doesn't realize is that that's a religious statement. Atheism is just as much a religious statement as theism. If you say that God exists, if that's a religious statement, then its opposite has to be a religious statement that God does not exist. So if it's a, rela- if it's a religious statement that God should play a part in my thinking about politics and government and leadership, then it's just as much a religious statement to say that God should not play a role in how I think about politics and leadership and government. And so we can't escape the fact that God, as the creators of Bible portrays it, God is the foundation for all thought. And if we are Christians and serious about the Word, and we believe that the Word of God addresses everything, then we have to be consistent with that and not leave Uh, the Bible outside of the political science classroom. It is part and parcel of our thinking about government, but it also tells us how we should handle this in relationship to people who are not believers, who are not uh, involved, who do not share the same beliefs that we do. We respect the fact that they have other beliefs. We don't impose Christianity on other people. There is not a legislation of Christianity on other people. That has been tried, uh, unfortunately, at times, such as during the period of the Crusades, which is uh, grossly maligned by people who have just bought the uh, liberal Enlightenment distortion of the Crusades. Not that everything that was done in the Crusades was good. I'm not saying that. But there is much that is taught about the Crusades that is just just fallacious. The purpose of the Crusades was not a an attempt by the church to expand its territory. It wasn't an uh, imperialistic uh, endeavor by Western civilization. It was a response to the fact that the uh, that peaceful religion down in the Middle East, uh, known as Islam, was invading the Byzantine Empire, and was threatening them. And the head of the Byzantine Empire called upon the Pope in Rome to please send aid so that we can protect ourselves and defend ourselves from these, from these, the, the incursions of the Muslim armies. And so it was designed initially as a defensive attempt to protect uh, the Byzantine Empire from the uh, assaults that were brought against it by the Muslims. It was Islam that initiated, not uh, the Western Church. So that's part of the initial problem there, but we're not here to study the Crusades. But we have to recognize it's not the role of the Church to impose or legislate Christianity upon uh, the culture, but Christians are to be involved because we're part of the system, we're citizens, that's part of our responsibility, and we have to know how to think and operate again in, in, in this environment from a biblical viewpoint. So the Old Testament gives us several key passages that help to frame our understanding of the role of government. 
And the, the first of these is found in Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant. In Genesis chapter 9, we've gone over it many times, so I'm not even going to go there, but Genesis chapter 9 establishes the basic foundation of government. And in, in the Noahic Covenant, God tells Noah that, that now uh, if man sheds man's blood, if there is murder, then the person who commits murder should have his blood shed also. He delegates the responsibility for capital punishment to mankind. Now, that's a very abbreviated statement, but in order to fulfill that, man had to figure out a way to do that in a just manner. There had to be a system of laws developed for uh, witnesses, there had to be, uh, and to establish the fact that a murder had actually taken place, uh, had to establish laws related to just executions. All of these things are part of it. What the Noahic Covenant does is simply establish the principle, and so in order to carry out those principles, there had to be the development of a judicial system and government. But that doesn't necessarily entail a nation. You can have all kinds of groups of people that are self-governing that are not nations. That idea of nationhood and that national distinctiveness comes along after the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of Babel operates because man failed to do what he was required to do under the Noahic Covenant, which is to scatter and multiply and to fill the earth. So man fails to do that, and what happens? You have this guy named Nimrod who comes along. Uh, he's first introduced in Genesis chapter 10. Nimrod comes along, and he establishes himself as an autocratic tyrant in the area of Babylon on the plains of Shinar. And he has this idea that he's going to get everybody together and unite them against God and to build this ziggurat or this temple high, high enough so that the people would be protected against that horrible, evil God if he tries to drown us in a flood again. And so they're going to build this tower to reach to heaven. Now, that seems pretty silly to us, but that was his political agenda. Many demagogues come up with all kinds of silly ideas uh, to promote change in order to get the masses, the unthinking masses, to follow them without critically evaluating whatever their plan or program is. And that's been the same all the way down through the ages. And so the whole Tower of Babel episode is shows that sinful, corrupt man is going to pervert government. But that doesn't mean that the institution itself is wrong. So the establishment of government comes in the Noahic Covenant in Genesis chapter 9, and we see the first subversion of government in Genesis chapter 11. Now, the next key passage that we see related to government in the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy. So you might want to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. Now, this is a passage we've looked at before in relationship to Solomon because this becomes the Mosaic law uh, basis for uh, indicting Solomon, or part, at least part of it, in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17. And in verse 14 we read, When you enter the land when God, the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. See, God is being prophetic here. He knows what they're going to say. They want to be like everybody else. 
I want to set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves. Now that idea is played out in the U.S. Constitution. They picked that idea up from here that a president of the United States would have to be a, a natural-born citizen of the United States. And so that is why we can't have somebody like the governor of California who was born in, in Austria come over here, even though he's emigrating, even though he becomes a citizen, he's not qualified to be president. And that's part of the Constitution. And th- it, that idea is influenced by the, uh, by the Mosaic Law. And then it goes on, verse 16, saying, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. The point here is that, in verse uh, verse 16, is that the, the, the king has to have an attitude of humility toward the people. The people do not exist in order to bring prosperity to the ruler. He is not to uh, prosper himself at uh, the expense of the people. And, uh, but this is what God warns them will, will happen. Also, verse 17, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. He's not to use his political position in order to enhance and, and uh, develop his own wealth and his own power. And this is one of the things that you see running throughout Scripture is that there is an embedded view of leadership in the Scripture that a genuine leader is a man that has a genuine humility and a desire to serve the people. That's the idea that that Ezekiel is talking about when he condemns the leaders of Israel as unworthy shepherds because they're leading for their own uh, self-aggrandizement. This is the same charge that Jesus brings against the Pharisees because they don't know what it means to be a true, genuine leader. This is what he is demonstrating is that as a true leader, you come to serve the people. And Jesus said that he came to uh, uh, serve the people and to seek and to save that which was lost. He comes to serve, not to lord it over people as the Gentiles did. So there's that, that contrast. So verses 16 and 17 point out that the, the, the ruler should not be in it for what he gets out of it. Verse 18, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. A couple of things to note there. First of all, as the king comes to the throne, he's under the authority of God, and God wants to remind him of that, and so he has to consistently write out, copy for himself, handwrite a copy of the Mosaic Law so that he will understand who the nation Israel is, what God's purpose for them is, and then he will understand his role, how he fits within that scheme. He's to do it with witnesses involved. He can't just say, well, I've done that. He has to be observed by the Levitical priests who represent God. Then we get into verse 19. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. That's the purpose. He is to fear the Lord his God. Now, that is an important phrase because we learn, it's repeated many times in Scripture, but we learn, for example, in uh, Proverbs 1.7 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is that authority, orientation, and respect for God and his word that is the starting point for all knowledge. So he is to read the word, to study the word daily to so that he will fear the Lord to begin to have wisdom, and he is to carefully observe all the words of the law and these statutes. He is to understand everything that he is to do and how the nation is to function before God. For a purpose, second purpose stated in verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now, when we saw this in relation to Solomon, we saw that Solomon failed in all of this. He multiplied wives to himself. He multiplied horses to himself. He is uh, uh, benefiting enhancing his own life uh, on the results of the work of the people. And so he gets lifted up by pride and arrogance to the point that he rejects God in the latter part of his reign. And so God is going to bring this discipline upon him. And the irony is that it is Solomon is the one who, when he began his reign, is truly humble and at the beginning part of his reign manifests what this kind of leader, what the biblical kind of leader should be like. But pride enters into it and he fails. Now, in a, in a, in a broader sense, what God is going to be demonstrating to Israel is that no human being can ever be the, the solution to our problems because our problems derive from a spiritual problem, not from a political, not from an educational, uh, not from uh, an economic source. It ultimately resides in a spiritual source, and unless there is a spiritual solution, the political solution is no solution, the economic solution is no solution, and uh, there are no other solutions that will help. And so we always have to be careful when we enter into the political season. People can get all caught up in, in all the debates and all the argumentation and recognize that that one person or everybody's just horrible and going to lead us into uh, national destruction. And we have to realize that our security is not in politics. Our security is in the Lord, and the Lord is the one who controls and directs history. That doesn't mean that we are passive or that we bury ourselves uh, and divorce ourselves from being involved politically, but we have to understand it from the right uh, the right perspective. Now, the leadership is oriented to two things. One is foolishness, is, is wisdom related to the fear of the Lord, and the other is going to have to do, do with uh, foolishness. These two ideas we're going to have to develop, but we're not going to get there until next time. But I want to look at two other things very, very quickly before we end. We've got about one minute and so I want you to turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. From Deuteronomy, we go through Joshua, Judges, and then 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is, one again, one of the uh, crucial political statements. 
in all the scripture. The Israelites have demanded of Samuel that they have a king and that he go to God and ask God to give the people a king. Up to this point, they've just been ruled by judges. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people in verse 10 who asked him for a king. He said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. So God warns them ahead of time. He says, he will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. So he's going to uh, institute a draft and enlarge the army, the military. This isn't an anti-military passage. It's just talking about how the king is going to do all this in self-promotion. He will appoint captains over his thousands, captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. See, it's all about him, his weapons of war, his chariots, his power. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants uh, over taxation. He will take a tenth of your grain, your vintage, and give it to his officers and servants, and he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys, and put them to work. And this is exactly what Solomon did. And beyond this, he uh, put this burden upon the people. And so the people say are, are warned, and uh, in verse 19 they say, uh, they refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. They say, no, but we will have a king over us. Don't confuse us with facts. Our mind's made up. Let's give up our freedom. And see, the more power the government has, the less freedom that people have. And it's amazing. People give up their freedom thinking the government can give them the security, and the government can't give them security. So Deuteronomy 17 is a key passage. Uh, Genesis uh, Genesis 9 Deuteronomy 17, 1 Samuel 8, and then 1 Kings 12. Our passage is the fourth key passage that we see with the divine editorial commentary related to uh, government. And we have to interpret 1 Kings chapter 12 within the context. There are a lot of important principles that are generally pulled out of these first 24 verses in 1 Kings 12. I mean, and, and they're important. They're, they're good principles, but they're not what this passage is necessarily all about because what we have to do is understand what the writer of Kings is trying to get across and what he is teaching grows out of the framework of the Mosaic Law. So we'll start next time by looking at what the writer of Kings is trying to show and how that is going to help us understand Uh, some key principles related to leadership, politics, and government from a divine viewpoint. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word tonight. Uh, We pray that we'd be challenged by these things, come to understand that you have specific things you say that relate and can apply even to across the years and across the cultures to our setting in the church age, and that this will help us and strengthen us as we think about the things that are going around, uh, going on around us with regard to our own government and the politics and the uh, presidential race this year. We just commit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.